And good afternoon. You're listening to Ken Hudnall. This is the Ken Hudnall Show. And it is coming to you for our studios right here in exciting El Paso, Texas. Gateway to the Old West and the most haunted city in the country. What a day is June the 12th, 163rd day of the year. 202 days remain till the year's over with. Holidays and observances. Eat Flexitarian Day. It's a style of eating that encourages eating most plant-based foods. Uh, National Loving Day. Brazilian Valentine's Day. Choco Armistice Day. That's uh, observed in Paraguay. Child Labor Day. Put your children to work. Uh, Columbia Corpus Christi Day. Democracy Day. International Falafel Day, National Button Battery Awareness Day. Uh, make sure your children don't swaddle them. They are small. National Dane Day, National Esther Day, National Jerky Day. Shout out to all the members of Congress who are real jerks. National Peanut Butter Cookie Day, National Red Rose Day, Peace Day. Uh, actually celebrating everything that led up to the independence of Kosovo. Philippines Independence Day. Pulse Night of Remembrance. Uh, remember the lives lost to a terrorist uh, at the Orlando Pulse Nightclub. Raggedy Ann and Andy Day. Russia Day. Superman Day. White Nights Festival in St. Petersburg. And World Day Against Child Labor. So don't put your children to work. Alrighty. In 910 AD, the Battle of Augsburg. The Hungarians defeat the East Frankish army under King Louis the Child using the famous uh, feigned retreat tactic of the nomadic warriors. 1240, at the instigation of Louis IX of France, an interfaith debate known as the Disputation of Paris starts between a Christian monk and four rabbis. 1381, the Peasants' Revolt. In England, rebels assembled at Blackheath, just outside of London. 1418, Armagnac, Burgundian Civil War. Parisian slaughter sympathizers of Bernard VII, Count of Armagnac, along with all prisoners, foreign bankers, and students and faculty of the College of Navarre. 1429, Hundred Years' War, second day of the Battle of Jargot. Joan of Arc leads the French army and they're captured the city and the English commander, William de la Pole, first Duke of Suffolk. 1550, the city of Helsinki, Finland, which belonged to Sweden at the time, is founded by King Gustav I of Sweden. 1643, the Westminster Assembly is convened by the Parliament of England without the assent of Charles I in order to restructure the Church of England. 1653, the First Anglo-Dutch War. Battle of the Gabbard begins, lasting until the next day. 1665, Thomas Willett is appointed the first mayor of New York City. If he could see what his city has become. Mm. 1758, French and Indian War. Siege of Lewisburg. James Wolfe's attack at Lewisburg, Nova Scotia begins. 1772, French explorer Mark Joseph Marin Dufresne and 25 of his men are killed by Maori in New Zealand. 1775, American War of Independence. 
British General Thomas Gage declares martial law in Massachusetts. British offer pardoned all colon, uh, colonists to lay down their arms. Only be two exceptions to the amnesty. Samuel Adams and John Hancock, if captured, were to be hung. That's a very antisocial attitude. 1776, the Virginia Declaration of Rights is adopted. 1798, Irish Rebellion of 1798. On this date, we had the Battle of Ballinod Hinge. Yeah, Ballinod Hinge. 1817, earliest form of bicycle, the, the dandy horse, is driven by Carl von Dreis. 1821, Body the 7th, King of Sennar, surrenders his throne and realm to Ishmael of Pasha, general of the Ottoman Empire, ending the existence of the Sudanese kingdom. 1830, beginning with the invasion of Algiers, 34,000 French soldiers land 27 kilometers west of Algiers at uh, Sidi Farouk. 1864, American Civil War. Overland Campaign, Battle of Coal Harbor. Grant gives the Confederate forces under Lee a victory when he pulls his Union troops out of their positions at Coal Harbor, Virginia, and moves south. He's going to try to circle the Confederate Army and uh, get to um, Richmond. 1898, Philippine Declaration of Independence. General Emilio Ganaldo declares the Philippines independence from Spain. 1899, New Richmond Tornado. Deadliest, the eighth deadliest tornado in U.S. history kills 117 and injures around 200. And in 1900, the Reichstag approves new legislation continuing Germany's naval expansion program. Provides for the construction of 38 battleships over a 20-year period. At that point, Germany's fleet will be the largest in the world. Nineteen fourteen, massacre of Fokai. Turkish irregulars slaughter 50 to 100 Greeks and expel thousands, expel thousands of others in an ethnic cleansing operation in the Ottoman Empire. 1921, Mikhail Tsovetsky orders the use of chemical weapons against the Tambov Rebellion, bringing an end to the peasant uprising. <coughs> 1935, a ceasefire is negotiated between Bolivia and Paraguay, ending the Chaco War. 1939, shooting begins on uh, Paramount Pictures' Dr. Cyclops. First horror film photographed in three-strip Technicolor. Also in 1939, the Baseball Hall of Fame opens in Cooperstown, uh, New York. 1940, World War II, 13,000 British and French troops surrendered to Major General Aaron Rommel at uh, St. Valerie and Cowles. 1942, Anne Frank gets a diary for her 13th birthday. 1943, the Holocaust, Germany liquidates the Jewish ghetto in Brzezny, Poland. Uh, which is now in the Ukraine. About 1,180 Jews have led to the city's old Jewish graveyard and shot. I do not understand the rationale for that. 1944, World War II, Operation Overlord. American paratroopers of the 101st Airborne Division secure the town of Carrington, Normandy, and France. 1954, Pope Pius XII canonizes a Dominic Savio, who was 14 years old at the time of his death. He was canonized as a saint, making him at the time the youngest unmartyred saint in the Roman Catholic Church. 2017, Francisco and Jacinta Marto, who were 10 and 9 at the time of their deaths, were declared saints.
It's interesting. Pope waves his hand and you're a saint. Yeah, for those that are not familiar with Dominic Slavo uh, or Savio, he was an Italian student of John Bosco, studying to be a priest when he became ill and died at the age of 14. They think he might have died of pleurisy. Noted for his piety and devotion to the Catholic faith. Um, Bosco uh, regarded uh, Savio highly and wrote a biography of his young student. Which, uh, at the age of 10, there wasn't a whole lot to say, I would imagine. 1963, NAACP field secretary Medgar Evers is murdered in front of his home in Jackson, Mississippi by Ku Klux Klan member Byron D. La Beckwith during the Civil Rights Movement. Also in 63, the film Cleopatra starring Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton is released in U.S. theaters. Most expensive film made at the time. 1964, anti-apartheid activist and ANC leader Nelson Mandela is sentenced to life in prison for sabotage in South Africa. 1967, U.S. Supreme Court in Loving v. Virginia declares all U.S. state laws which prohibit interracial marriage to be unconstitutional. You know, it's interesting. small number of people can have their opinions change everything. That's what's going on today with Target and Anheuser-Busch. Small number of people trying to tell you how you ought to live. Um, in fact, the worst trouble I ever got in, I told a judge in the state of Georgia, blacks had the right to legal representation. Oh, he had a fit. I was a traitor to my race. 1975, India. Judge Jagmohani Sinha of the city of Allahabad ruled that India's Prime Minister Indira Gandhi used the corrupt practices to win her seat in the Indian Parliament and she should be banned from holding any public office. As Gandhi sent him word that uh, she refused to resign. 1979, Byron, uh, Brian Allen wins the second uh, Krimer Prize for a man-powered flight across the English Channel in the Gossamer Albatross, 1981. First of the Indiana Jones film franchise, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, is released in theaters on this date. 1982, nuclear disarmament rally and concert in New York City. Yes, you sing and people will change their attitudes. 1987, Central African Republic's former emperor, Jean Bede Bokassa, is sentenced to death by, for crimes he had committed during his 13-year rule. 1987, during the Cold War, to Brandenburg Gate, President Reagan publicly challenged Miguel Gorbachev to tear down the Berlin Wall. I would have preferred to have seen a cage match, winner take all. 1988, Austro Linnaeus Arias Flight uh, 46, a McDonnell Douglas MD 81 crashes short of the runway at the Libertador General Jose de San Martin Airport, kills all 22 people on board. 1990, Russia Day. Parliament of the Russian Federation formally declares its sovereignty. 1991, Russians first democratically erected uh, Boris Yeltsin as president of Russia. Now, so in 1991, 
Koko Chicago Lai Massacre, the Sri Lankan Army massacres 152 minority Tamil civilians in the village of Koko Dik Chotalai near the eastern province town of Vatakeo uh, Loa. 1993, an election takes place in Nigeria and is won by Masoud Kasimayo Awali Abiola. His results are later nullified by the military government of Ibrahim Babangida. 1997, Queen Elizabeth II reopens the Globe Theater in London. 1999, Kosovo War. Operation Joint Guardian begins with a NATO-led United Nations Peacekeeping Force enters the province of Kosovo and Federal Republic of Yugoslavia. 2009, a disputed presidential election in Iran leads to a wide-ranging local and international protest. 2014, between 1,095 and 1,700 Shia Iraqi people are killed in an attack by the Islamic State of Iraq and Levant uh, on uh, Camp Spelcher in Tikrit, Iraq. Second deadliest act of terrorism in history. It only is behind the 9-11 attack. 2016, 49 civilians are killed. 58 others are injured in an attack on a gay nightclub in Orlando, Florida. The gunman, whose name was Omar Mateen, is killed in a gunfight with police. 2017, American student Otto Wambler returns home in a coma after spending 17 months in a North Korean prison and dies a week later. And in 2018, U.S. President Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un, North Korea, held the first meeting between leaders of their two countries in Singapore. Well, of course, there are um, a number of issues that um, face us. And many of the Newsworthy uh, items regarding those benef- um, events never make the uh, the news. Uh, one thing I do want to make mention of before I forget: if you are a veteran, check the dates of service at Deers. Mine are completely incorrect. In fact, one period of service isn't even mentioned, and that can have an impact on your benefits that you have available as a veteran. Okay, there have been a lot of um, stories. And then there's a number of whistleblowers that talk about the fact that the U.S. military has uh, alien craft and reverse engineering them. Um, and not just here, but overseas as well. Now, there have been, um, I I did a couple of shows about the, um, an alleged moon base in, uh, on, uh, set up by, uh, the Nazis. They were quite a bit, um, more advanced in many respects. In fact, they... Uh, according to uh, an autobiography I read, they actually had a man orbit the Earth and safely brought him back. You know, in this time of 
many people living paycheck to paycheck. There are a lot of lost and hidden treasures in the state of Texas. In fact, there's more hidden treasure than there is in circulation. Uh, there's one that uh, I'm going to talk about today. The Goat Herders Lost Treasure is what it's called. There's been a fortune in gold and silver coins hidden in a remote cave in the Guadalupe Mountains of West Texas for over 150 years. It's thought to be robbery loot taken from an overland male stagecoach and hidden by a person or persons unknown. Accidentally found in the 1930s and then lost again. And for decades, people have searched, but the location of this uh, hoard remains elusive. And for those that don't believe there's any lost or hidden treasure, we used to go to Las Cruces, New Mexico, quite often. And there was one lady who had an antique shop we always stopped by to see. And we went in one particular Saturday, and she told me she's getting ready to retire, and there was something she wanted me to have. Okay, fine. She gave me a um, is it a Bible or a dictionary? And uh, I thanked her. And she gave me a box of treasure hunting magazines. And she said her brother had died, but he used to roam the countryside looking for lost and hidden treasure left by the Spanish and the uh, Native Americans and anybody else that may have lost something. And she said one day he came back loaded down. He didn't have a job, but he had plenty of money. And eventually he told her he had found a cave, and in that cave was a lot of, of uh, coins and folding money and what have you. And he never would tell her where it was. And one day he came to her and he handed her this book. And I don't, I've got it in my, um, here, and I don't remember if it was a Bible or, I think it was a dictionary. And he said the secret to where his treasure cave was, was in the book. So if something happened to him, he knew she could solve the code. And one day he didn't come back. They never saw him again. Unfortunately for her, she wasn't able to solve the code. So somewhere outside of uh, Las Cruces is a large amount of money hidden in a cave. Now, during the time before paved roads, getting back to the gold herders, lost treasure, and development of small settlements and ranches around the Guadalupe Mountains, which is 110 miles east of El Paso, the the native grasses were found there to, to be rich and plentiful. In fact, it was once described as being hip high to a tall horse. And because of the these nutritious grasses, the region was deemed to be ideal for raising livestock. 
And soon, several small cattle and sheep and goat ranching operations were established in the foothills and plains that uh, stretched out and away from the mountains. Well, during the early part of the 20th century, a man by the name of J.C. Hunter came into the area and saw how rich the grasses were around uh, the Guadalupe Mountains, and he thought it had great potential. So he bought several thousand acres of land stretching out from the foothills deep into the mountain range and moved in large herds of angora goats. At that point in time, mohair was in great demand. That's the yarn made from the long, silky hair of the angora goat. And those who could keep the Easter markets uh, supplied with this commodity were making huge profits. And his successful goat-up ranching enterprise in the Guadalupe Mountains, um, well, it was a great success. He made a lot of money in the mohair market. In fact, in time, his ranch became one of the most successful in the region. And in addition to the goats, it was stocked with sheep and cattle. And he employed several cowhands, as well as a number of sheep and goat herders. And one of the goat herders was a young man named Jesus Duran. He preferred to be called Jesse. And along with his parents and siblings, he'd migrated from somewhere deep in the Mexican state of Coahuila to Texas two years before he came to work for Hunter. And after crossing the Rio Grande, he went looking for employment. And he turned up at the Hunter Ranch in the, the Guadalupe Mountains. He had spent a number of years herding goats in Mexico, so Hunter gave him the responsibility of tending a large herd of goats which fed on the grass uh, along the southeastern slope of the range. Now, he was, Jesse was described as an uncomplicated, uneducated young man. Never learned to le- read or write, or, but he was a good, dependable worker. Never owned anything of value during his lifetime. And with his job on the Hunter Ranch, his basic needs for food and shelter were taken care of, and that's really all he cared about. Earned a small salary. Had little need for money, and sent most of his wages to his parents who had settled in Laredo, Texas. And by anybody's standards, Jesse Duran lived in poverty. One day during the spring of 1930, he discovered a great wealth in a small cave in the mountains. And that discovery changed his life and set in motion a series of searches for treasure that continues to this day. He was tending his goat herd early one spring morning on the top of and along the flanks of uh, Radar Ridge. That's a long, narrow limestone prominence that juts out from the southeast-facing slope of the Guadalupe's and extends toward the El Paso-Carlsbad Highway, which is about a mile away. For two days, a light rain fell in that region, accompanied by a brisk wind. Jesse wrapped his woolen poncho around his shoulders and watched his goats from the protection of a juniper tree. When he noticed his canteen was empty, he decided to hike over to Juniper Spring to fill it up. Well, Juniper Spring was about a mile southwest and downhill from where Jesse was sitting under that tree. So he turned into the wind and headed out from the spring. A few minutes of walking along a narrow goat trail, he decided to take a shortcut across the limestone slope. And that new route proved to be a little bit rougher. Large table-sized slabs of limestone were everywhere, and he soon found himself walking around and on top of them. And on one of them, he uh, stepped onto a rain-slick 
slab of rock he gave way under him and slid down the slope for several feet. Spilled him to the ground, of course. Well, he got up and wiped the mud off his pants and noticed a small opening in the limestone outcrop where the larger rock had been resting. One thing he did have was curiosity. In the dim light of that overcast morning, he bent down and peered into that dark space and realized he was staring into a cave. And as his eyes grew accustomed to the dark interior, he, he was shocked at what he saw. Um, inside, propped up in seated positions against the right-hand wall with three skeletons. What little remained of clothing hung loosely from the bones and leaning against the opposite wall with three rifles. Well, as he stared into the cave, he saw something else that certainly attracted his attention. On the floor of the cavern, just beyond the skeletons, were three strong boxes that used to be the type that used to be used by Wells Fargo and the Butter, uh, Butterfield Overland Mail Company to transport cargo. One of the boxes was open, and he saw it was filled nearly to the top. Well, not knowing what to think about this, he didn't touch anything in the cave and didn't even go through the entrance. With difficulty, he would put that heavy limestone slab back over the opening with the juniper spring, filled up his canteen, and went back to his herd and thought about what to do about his discovery. Late in the day, he decided what his next move had to be. He believed it was his responsibility to inform the hunter-ranch foreman of what he'd found. Well, after making sure the goats were taken care of, he walked several miles to the home of Frank Stodgden. Got there an hour past sundown. Miss Stodgden greeted Jesse at the back door and invited him in out of the cold and rain for some coffee. She told Jesse that Stodgden and three neighbor ranchers were playing cards in another room, and as soon as they finished, it'd be time for him to talk. About an hour later, Stogden called Jesse to come in, and he and the other three cowboys listened as the young Mexican related the story of what he'd found. Well, Stogden and his friends were ready to ride out to Radar Ridge and retrieve the treasure, but Jesse was a little hesitant. He told the man he feared the spirits of the dead that resided in the cave. He explained that Mexicans believe in the concept of El Patron, a life force that watches over hidden treasure and protects it from those who are not worthy of possessing it. Now, Jesse was a devout Catholic with a strong belief in the powers of departed souls. He said that to enter that cave and disturb the site by removing the treasure would anger the spirits and bring hardship, even death, to the perpetrators and their families. He told them, and he believed nothing but evil would uh, result from a return to the treasure cave. Well, the cowman, of course, continued to question Jesse for the next hour about where that cave was, but young goat herder's fears made him cautious and reluctant and made him want to risk further refusal. They finally agreed to wait till morning to continue discussing the matter. Stogden invited Jesse to spend the night in the barn, and in the morning they'll run out to Radar Ridge and examine the cave. Well, when dawn came, Jesse Duran was gone. Never seen again in the vicinity of the Guadalupe Mountains. Well, after breakfast the next day, Stogden and his three companions saddled their horses and rode to the base of the mountain, or the south-facing slope of Radar Ridge, and arriving about mid-morning. They got to Jupiter Spring, dismounted, tied their horses to trees, and started to search the area on foot. Unfortunately for them, the rain of the previous days had obliterated any sign of Jesse's presence. 
According to an interview with Stogden many years later, the ranch foreman stated Jesse insisted he found a small cave while hiking downslope from Radar Ridge toward the spring. Leaving the old goat trail, Jesse had walked several yards along an exposed limestone ledge and then he slipped on a large flat rock. Jesse told Stogden that when he was standing in front of the cave, he was no more than a quarter of a mile from Juniper Spring. Well, Stogden and his friends searched for the location all that day, didn't find anything. Encountered dozens of flat limestone slabs, both large and small. Together, they lifted one heavy stone after another to one side, hoping to locate the cave, but they didn't find it. After searching for most of the day, they gave up and went back home. Well, the four men visited that area off and on over the next few months looking for that cave, but... Eventually, they gave up the search. In time, others learned of the story of Jesse Duran and the treasure cave. Soon, the foothills of the Guadalupe Mountains between Radar Ridge and Juniper Spring were swarming with men trying to find the hidden treasure, but like Stogden and his friends, they had no success. Extensive research into the tale of Jesse Duran suggests the treasure cave did indeed exist, and in all probability, consisted of chests of gold and silver coins taken from one or more robberies of the Butterfield Overland Mail coaches that uh, traveled the road through Guadalupe Pass. Short distance um, down the slope from the spring. And the loot, probably hidden by the robbers in that cave, uh, was never retrieved. Well, the the massive limestone... um, Brief, that is, the Guadalupe Mountains extends for nearly 200 miles and transects the Texas and the Mexico border. And within these mountains, there are actually hundreds of caves. One of them, called Lechaguida Cave, is considered to be the largest cavern system in the world. And not far from there is the famous Carlsbad Caverns, which is a national park, of course. Regions also pockmarked a smaller cave, some just barely large enough for a man to crawl into. Most extend only a few feet into the bedrock, and within a mile of Juniper Spring, you can find a number of those small caves. And at one time, the Butterfield Overland Mail Route passed less than a mile south of Juniper Spring. The Pinery, a stage stop where the horses were fed, watered, and rested, is about two miles to the southwest of the spring. And during its brief existence, the stage line transported passengers as well as mail and money and supplies. And it carried shipments of gold and silver from mines in the west to brokers and banks and companies and individuals in the east. And it is a fact that desperados lurked in the remote canyons of the Guadalupe Mountains that the outlaws sometimes stopped coaches as they labored up the steep grade toward the pinery station and robbed them. Records show the coaches were halted. Passengers robbed and chests containing gold and silver coins were taken on a number of occasions. Well, given this blending of facts, uh, along with the Wells Fargo-style chest seen by Jesse Duran, it's not unreasonable to conclude that the cave he stumbled upon served as a hiding place for items stolen from the stage line. What's a little more difficult to, to explain the presence of the three skeletons he said he saw in the cave Maybe they were victims of the robbers. Or maybe there was a disagreement in a division of the loot and three of their members were killed and left in the cave. 
Well, other strong boxes and chests have been found in the Guadalupe Mountains, all documented. Some instances, the perpetrators of the robbery and the hiding of the treasure were captured or killed or otherwise denied the opportunity to go back to the hiding places to retrieve their stolen goods. Now, there's a few skeptics, of course, who question the veracity of Jesse Durant's tale, suggesting the young man made it all up. An old-timer in the area of the Guadalupe Mountains who claimed to have known Jesse all stated he was an honest, sincere, trustworthy, hard-working young man who showed no indications he was inclined to make up stories. He was well-liked and had the respect of everybody who knew him. Well, in searching for what became of Jesse Duran, it was learned that after fleeing Foreman Stogden's residence that night, he went to the home of his sister in Carlsbad, about 60 miles to the northeast. And there he stayed in hiding for three months, rarely leaving the house. According to his relatives, his fear of El Patron was so strong he continued to believe his accidental discovery of the treasure might bring bad luck to his family. You know, at the first opportunity, he left his sister's home and traveled to California and worked there as a farm laborer until he died in the early 1970s. Well, evidence does exist that others may have found the treasure on the side of the radar ridge but they were unaware of the significance of their discovery. Sam Hughes ran a successful cattle and sheep operation in uh, Dog Canyon, located on the um, north side of the Guadalupe Mountains. One day he was deer hunting with several friends near Juniper Springs when he accidentally slipped on a large slab of limestone and fell, landing partially in the opening of a small cave. Thinking there might be rattlesnakes in the cave, he extracted himself and continued with his hunt. He wasn't aware of Jesse Duran's treasure story at that point in time. Well, that evening, as Hughes and his friends were relating the day's activities around the campfire, the rancher told about his fall into the cave. Noel Kincaid, who replaced Stogden as foreman of the J.C. Hunter Ranch and had been an occasional searcher for the treasure himself, asked Hughes to describe the cave and its location. In the description of that small hole, Matt's the one Jesse Duran gave years before. Hughes said the cave was about a quarter of a mile northeast of Juniper Spring. And the next morning, of course, the deer hunters went back to that area to search for the cave, but they weren't able to find it. Lester White was a white-bearded, sun-wrinkled outdoorsman who lived in and around Grotto Alipe Mountain, mostly in temporary camps, cooking his meals on an open campfire. Well, he was a throwback to the days of the grizzled tenacious prospectors who lived at that uh, for that one big strike. In this particular case, he searched for lost mines and buried treasure throughout the Guadalupe Mountains. Spent 15 years in the range off and on, but he never heard the story of Jesse Duran's lost treasure cave. One evening while seated around a campfire, Vister told him a tale about the skeletons and the rifles and the chest filled with gold and silver coins. White responded by saying he might have actually seen that very cave a few days before, but he didn't know anything about what was inside. White told about a time when he was exploring an area about a mile northeast of the old rock house that served as the headquarters for the Hunter Ranch and where Foreman Noel Kincaid lived at the time. White said he wasn't far from Buniper Spring when he encountered a small cave quite by accident. He was resting near an old goat trail that led from the spring to the top of Ritter Ridge. He said at that point, just below where he sat, he saw the opening of a small cave partially concealed by a large flat limestone slab. Curious, he climbed down to the location and inspected it. 
and according to his statement, the rocket slid a few inches downslope, exposing a portion of the cave opening beneath it. He said it looked like somebody had put that rock over the cave in the past with the intention of hiding the entrance. Well, he climbed down to the location and peered into the hole between the slab and the corner of the opening, and he said what he saw made the hair on the back of his neck stand up. He said there were at least two skeletons and a bunch of rotted cloth. Now, he'd encountered skeletons in caves in the range in the past, but paid little attention to them. Most of them are clearly Indian burials, and he chose to leave them alone. And he presumed this most recent discovery may have been one of those burials, and he was determined to allow the location and respect he thought it deserved. Carefully, he readjusted that limestone slab so it re recovered the opening and went on with his explorations. On hearing the story attributed to Jesse Duran, he became convinced he'd found the treasure cave, but had mistaken it for something else. He assured his visitor he could actually relocate the cave, and the next day the two men hiked over to Juniper Springs. From the spring, White confidently led his friend to a northeasterly direction along a rock, uh, rugged and rocky slope of Radar Ridge. His thought was on the great fortune he was convinced he was going to find in that small remote cave. Well, stopping at the limestone outcrop, he paused and scanned the immediate area, stating that the place looked different on this morning than it did on the evening he was there three days before. Flat limestone slabs littered the area, and he couldn't determine which of them was the one he'd replaced over the opening. He and his companion shifted several of them to one side, but didn't find the cave. Here and there, small holes and slightly larger openings in the shallow caves could be seen, and all, of course, were examined, but nothing was found. Well, the two men searched the slope, stopping only now and then for a sip of water from a canteen. By dust, dusk, can't talk. White, who was dejected, decided it was time to give up. But for months afterwards, he returned to the area and searched for that one particular limestone slab that covered the opening to what he was convinced was the treasure cave. Well, he never found it, and he searched off and on for that elusive cave until he passed away sometime in the 1970s. Like Lester White, others have arrived at this location over the years in search of Jesse Duran's Lost Treasure Cave. So far, it's not been found, or it's never been announced it's been found. Today, the area around Juniper Springs lies inside the boundaries of the Guadalupe Mountains National Park. The spring, as well as Radar Ridge, is far from any authorized hiking trail. Park Service discourages any off-trail exploring, though it happens from time to time. And though hunting for lost treasure is, in fact, forbidden on federal lands, hopeful fortune seekers still occasionally make their way to Juniper Spring to try to find the gold hunter's uh, lost treasure cave. Now, it's interesting to note, um, I've known another number of professional treasure hunters over the years. Some have lived very nicely with what they've found. Um, in fact, I knew two NCOs when I was in South America. Um, the Army was their hobby. Their full-time job was treasure hunting. And they could have left the Army and never done anything. They had found so much. Let's talk about the Lavaca River treasure. All the pirates who sailed the Gulf of Mexico off the Texas coast, none garnered more recognition than uh, Jean Lafitte. And although dozens of these brigands plied the Gulf waters attacking ships and raiding coastal communities, most of their names are lost to history. John Lafitte was the outlaw buccaneer most associated with the coast of Texas. 
I guess you could say he was a Jesse James of the open sea. Now, much, is what have been, much of what has been written about John Lafitte over the years has been attributed to legend, but many of his exploits, love his buried treasure, have been well documented. Now, he was indeed noteworthy and notorious, and had left behind rich treasures in gold and silver, jewels and precious stones. Now, although the, the pirate was born John Lafitte, allegedly in France, most of the English language documents and resources bear their surname, um, Lafitte with one F and two T's. Since that remains the most common usage, I'll pronounce it that way. Despite intensive research into the origin of John Lafitte, much of his early life does remain a mystery still. During one point in his life, he claimed to have been born in Bordeaux, France in 1780. His parents, he claimed, were Sephardic Jews whose ancestors fled Spain for France during the 1760s. On another occasion, Lafitte, along with his brother Pierre, claimed to have been born in the French city of Bayonne. Research into Lafitte's background has yielded additional claims that he was born in the French towns of Brest and St. Malo. One of his biographers suggested it was convenient to claim French France as a birthplace during his time, for it provided some element of protection from American law. Other accounts uh, provide uh, Orduna, Spain, as well as Westchester, New York, as his place of origin. And to add to the confusion of his origins, uh, author Jack Ramsey introduced the notion the pirate was born in the French colony of Saint Dominique, former name for present day Haiti. Number of French plantation owners migrated from Haiti to Louisiana, where they established expansive farms. An examination of population records for Haiti in the 1760s reveals a number of families with the surname Lafitte living there. Ramsey suggests that Lafitte, along with his brother and wooded mother, left St. Dominique for New Orleans in the 1780s. William Davis, another biographer, claimed Jean Lafitte was born in Palouc, France. 1782, one of nine children. He also claimed that Pierre was Jean Lafitte's half-brother. According to Davis, Lafitte's father was a trader, owned ships, spent much of his time at sea, and that the young man learned his shipmanship by serving aboard these vessels. Now, it's known that as a young man, he was fascinated with the Bayou Country, Louisiana, and spent days exploring as much of it as possible. Time, this interest led to the exploration of inlets and harbors and other locations eastward into the onto the Mississippi coast and westward along the Texas coast. Well, while he was learning about the geography of the Gulf Coast, his older brother Pierre was operating as a privateer out of St. Dominique. Privateer referred to an individual who held a government commission authorizing the use of his vessel in war, especially in the capture of enemy merchant shipping. The vessel itself was called a privateer as well. Evidence suggests that Pierre bought, uh, brought captured merchandise in New Orleans to sell, and he was assisted in this endeavor by his brother Jean, or Jean. Well, by 1812, Jean Lafitte had grown tired of his role as a broker of stolen cargo. He saw the advantage in capturing the cargo himself and eliminating the middleman. With that in mind, he and his brother purchased a schooner and employed a man named Trey Cook to captain it. As the schooner didn't apply for commission from the government, it was therefore operating illegally, and according to law, such a vessel was regarded as a pirate ship. 
June of 1813, the Lafitte brothers captured a Spanish slave ship. They sold the slaves in Louisiana along with some of the additional cargo and pocketed $18,000, which was in those days a fortune. They converted the slave ship into a pirate vessel and named it the Dorada after a Mediterranean fish. After capturing another ship using the Dorada, the Lafitte deemed it a less than useful pirate vessel and returned it to its owners. And as a pirate, Lafitte gathered, uh, gained the reputation as being a true gentleman. I always treated captured crewmen well and freedom at the first opportunity. Seized goods were taken back to New Orleans and sold. Uh, Thomas Robertson, the acting governor of Louisiana, had grown perturbed by the piracy activities of the Lafitte brothers. And while the residents of the Louisiana coast appreciated the Lafitte's providing more goods at a low cost, Robertson referred to them as brigands who infest our coast and overrun our country. Governor William Claiborne returned to office and sent Robertson back to his previous duties. He relaxed the official pressure on the Lafitte's. June 18, 1812, the U.S. declared war on Great Britain. The U.S., of course, was at a naval disadvantage. And while Great Britain had a powerful navy, the U.S. had only a few ships. In order to fortify the navy, the U.S. government offered letters of marque, or mark as they were called, to private vessels. A letter of Marquet authorized a private citizen, a privateer, to attack and capture enemy vessels and bring them before Admiralty Courts for possession and sale. One such letter was granted to Jean Lafitte. Lafitte turned over some of the captured booty to the authorities. Most of it was sold illegally through his and Pierre's operation. When this became clear to the authorities, they realized how much revenue they were losing from Lafitte's illegal activities and set out to prevent him from continuing to do what he was doing. November 10, 1812, District Attorney John Grimes filed charges against Lafitte for violation of revenue law. Three days later, Jean and Pierre Lafitte were captured along with 25 of their crewmen. Contraband was confiscated. While the authorities were distracted, counting their loot, the Lafitte's escaped. March of 1813, John Lafitte registered as the captain of a sailing vessel, a brig. While he listed his job as piloting the ship on a trip to New York, he was, in truth, once again putting, establishing himself as a privateer. Not long after that, uh, he obtained a letter of marque from the country of Colombia. Although he captured ships and seized cargo, he never returned any of it to Cartagena, northern Colombia, directly to the state of the port of New Orleans, where he and his brother Pierre continued to sell it. This blatant disregard for Louisiana laws angered Governor Claiborne, who began making plans to recapture the bandit appointed his revenue officers to prepare an ambush. In addition, a $500 reward was offered for the capture of Jean Lafitte. In return, Lafitte had dozens of handbills printed up to hand out and tack on the walls, offered a $500 reward for the capture of the governor. 1814, Lafitte arranged for an auction of a large amount of contraband outside of New Orleans. Federal authorities attempted to break up the operation, but in the process, one of the revenue officers was killed and two others wounded. In these additions of these difficulties, New Orleans merchants were putting pressure on the governor to do something about Lafitte because the pirate was charging lower prices for the same goods they were selling. They've been responding to the ongoing difficulties by approaching the state legislature and requesting approval to establish a militia company to remove the uh, pirates from uh, Louisiana once and for all. Legislature appointed a committee to study the matter, but the truth was they were in no hurry to rouse Lafitte, as many of their constituents benefited from the pirate sale of goods. 
short time later, Pierre Lafitte was arrested, convicted, and jailed on charges related to piracy. The jailing conviction of Pierre didn't deter Jean Lafitte one whit. While his brother was incarcerated, Jean operated the piracy and smuggling business with impunity in response to Lafitte as well as other pirates. The British Navy increased patrols throughout the Gulf of Mexico. In August of 1814, they established a naval base at Pensacola. September, a British ship fired on one of Lafitte's vessels and gave pursuit. Lafitte took to shallow water where the larger British vessel couldn't go, and British commander raised a white flag and indicated he wanted to talk. He had a dinghy lowered into which several officers took seats and rowed toward uh, Lafitte's ship. Lafitte, likewise, lowered a rowboat and went out to meet him halfway. The captain of the British ship, Nicholas Lockerley, along with the Royal Marine Infantry Captain John McWilliam, been transporting a package with orders to give it to Lafitte. Lafitte invited the men to row to the nearby island, and on arriving at the island, the officers were surrounded by Lafitte's men as the pirate identified himself to them, and they handed over the package. Inside the package was a letter from King George III, who offered Lafitte and his pirates full British citizenship as well as land grants in the British colonies in the Americas if they promised to assist in the naval fight against the U.S., Letter stated if Lafitte refused the offer, they'd bombard Barataria, the pirate haven south of New Orleans, and base of operations for Lafitte. Second letter was from Lieutenant, Governor, Lieutenant Colonel Edward Nichols of the Royal Marines, urging the pirate to accept the offer. Lafitte realized that regarding his operation at Barataria Bay, he would eventually have to fight either the U.S. or the British. He felt he had a better chance of eventually succeeding against the U.S. forces later, so he decided to align with the British for the time being, but he sent a message to U.S. officials informing them that some of his men wanted to side with the British, but they would side with the American forces if Pierre was released. That offer was accepted. September 13, 1814, U.S. Navy Commodore Daniel Patterson led a warship, six gunboats, and a tender into Barataria Bay and began shelling ships and settlements on shore. Ten of the pirate ships formed a battle line in the bay and returned fire, but it became clear the U.S. forces were winning. Well, Lafitte, realizing the outcome of the battle was pretty well settled, ordered his men to abandon the ships. Several of those vessels were set afire, and when Patterson's troops arrived on the shore, they met no resistance, took 80 captives, captured eight pirate ships, half a million dollars worth of stolen goods. We couldn't locate Lafitte, who'd escaped into the forest and the swamps. Well, Governor Claiborne wrote letters to U.S. Attorney General Richard Rush and General Andrew Jackson requesting a pardon for the Baratarians and implied that Condor Patterson had erred in destroying the first line of defense for Louisiana. In December 1814, Jackson arrived in New Orleans and met with John Lafitte. Lafitte offered to help defend New Orleans against the British if the U.S. would pardon any of his men who agreed to join in the fight. Well, Jackson, who was the only person who could issue pardons, consented to the terms December 19th, the State legislature recommended a full pardon. And encouraged by Lafitte, many of them joined the New Orleans militia or volunteered to serve as sailors on the ships, and the rest formed three artillery companies. December 23rd, several ships of the British fleet sailed up the Mississippi River toward New Orleans. Lafitte noted the American line of defense didn't extend far enough to keep the British from encircling the American troops. Lafitte told Jackson it was necessary to extend the line into the swamps, and Jackson gave the order to do so. British commenced firing on the Americans December 28th while driven off our artillery company manned by two of Lafitte's former lieutenants. Or during the ensuing battle, Lafitte's men distinguished themselves in helping defeat the British. 
Even Jackson voiced praise of the bravery and skill of the former pirates. And with Jackson's recommendation and the legislature's recommendation, U.S. government granted full parts to Jean and Pierre Lafitte, as well as all the men who had served under him. Well, it was only a matter of time before Jean Lafitte made his way to Texas. During his pirating activities, he had been taken with the Texas Gulf Coast and potential opportunities for establishing a pirate colony. January of 1816, Jean Pierre Lafitte made an agreement with Spain to serve as spies. During that period of time, Spain was involved in the war with Mexico, which was fighting for independence. And Texas, of course, at that time belonged to Spain. John Jean was ordered to Galveston Island on the Texas Gulf Coast. Galveston served as a headquarters for the pirate uh, Louis-Michel Ore, a French privateer who sympathized with the Mexicans. During March or April of 1817, Lafitte displaced Ore and assumed command of the Galveston Island. He found the island was ideal for his needs, essentially uninhabited save for his own men and the Karankawa Indians and was outside the territory of the U.S. So he lost no time making it the base for his smuggling operation. Uh, Lafitte's uh, crewmen tore down the house constructed by Ore and built dozens of new ones for the officers and crew along with storage facilities. Before 1817 ended, uh, Lafitte's Gulf uh, Galveston Island colony, which he called Campeche, boasted a population of about 200. And newcomers to the island required to sign a loyalty oath to the pirates. And Lafitte remained busy attacking and capturing merchant ships. Well, it's known that a lot of treasure captured from various ships buried and hidden in and around uh, Campeche. In, 19, in 1820, Lafitte reportedly married Madeleine Rangel, the daughter of a French communist. They had a son, Jean-Pierre Lafitte. 1821, USS Enterprise was ordered to Galveston Island to remove Lafitte and his pirates once and for all in response to an attack on an American merchant ship. Lafitte met with the captain of the Enterprise, a man named Kearney. Several days of discussions, negotiations between the pirate and Kearney and hope they were... Uh, They'd work out a deal. Unfortunately, uh, it didn't really come to pass. Uh, the two people he said were responsible for the attack on the merchant ship, uh, Lafitte, um, had hung. Well, Kearney wasn't impressed and instructed his sailors to aim the guns at Enterprise toward the island and gave Lafitte 30 days to vacate. So he shifted his operation to Mount Gorda Bay, 100 miles to the southwest. Well, we're going to talk more about Jean Lafitte and his hidden treasure in a future show. But for the moment, we're running out of time. So until tomorrow at this time, this is Ken Hudnall for the Ken Hudnall Show saying have a truly great evening. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.